Well, good evening, Redeemer Dubai. It is a joy. It really is a joy to be here uh, with you all. This, this church has a special place in my own heart from the, just the time I spent here, was a member here. Uh, my wife, Kelly, those of you who don't know us, my name is Blaine Boyd. My wife, Kelly, um, actually came to faith uh, in this very church, um, started to grow up in the gospel um, among these saints. And so what a, what a sweet place it is. It's, it's a joy to be back here. It's a joy to open the word with you. And, and, and even though it is a joy and I have a very special place in my heart for this church, I, I do have some concern that I want to talk about tonight, some concern for this church. Uh, it's not a, a specific concern about anything going on here at Redeemer Dubai. There's nothing special that I'm specifically worried about with Redeemer Dubai, but it's a concern I have for, for every church that I go into and, and see. It's a, it's a concern I have for the, the universal church of Christ. And, and that concern is, is that I fear that there are people sitting in this room tonight, that are sitting in the church, who suffer from a condition called Christian dissociation disorder. Christian dissociation disorder. Well, if you've never heard of this disorder, that's okay because I just made it up. But, but I made it up to, to try to describe for myself something I'm seeing among the church. And it seems like in, in every church that I'm trying to describe something that I see that, that people are suffering with inside the church. Christian dissociation disorder. Now, Dissociation disorder is a real thing. Uh, mental health professionals would know about this. It's, a, it's actually a rather serious mental health condition. Um, and what happens in dissociation disorder is that a person disconnects themselves from their reality, often because of a trauma or, or a specific fear or, or something like that. Then a, a person disconnects themselves from the reality. Often they disconnect themselves from their identity. And that's what I see often happening in the church that that us as Christians are disconnecting ourselves from our identity that we have in Jesus Christ. That which Christ has made us, that identity, we we disconnect ourselves from that. Christian dissociation disorder. If you're wondering if you are here and you're suffering from this disorder, let me, let me give you a diagnostic question. This will be to help you know whether I'm actually talking about you or not. Here's the diagnostic question. When is the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? When's the last time you spoke of Jesus' saving grace to someone else? Specifically, someone else who is not yet believing in Jesus. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone in your family or, or a friend or a, a coworker or, or someone you randomly met on the bus? Someone who is not yet believing. If if you're going back in your memory, trying to think, okay, when was the last time I did that? And you're, you're hitting six months, or you're, you're hitting a year, or two years, or, or a decade, or, well, friend, you may be suffering from Christian dissociation disorder. What I mean by that is, 
in our very identity as Christians, who God has made us to be, and the calling he has given us each is to be those who are sharing forth and, and telling of others the gospel. Yet so many of us will easily live calling ourselves a Christian completely disconnected from this identity and calling in our life. How do we, how do we cure Christian dissociation disorder? How, how are we going to take on this condition that we have? How do we, how do we cure this thing? Well, I think it'd be wise for us to, to look into God's Word to see the, the identity and purpose that God gives us in His Word and, and pray that the Holy Spirit would, would drive that down deep in us and, and empower us to actually live out who we've been made to be in Christ. And so that's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to look at just two short verses. But in these two short verses, I want us to see our identity, who we are as the people of God, who we are in Christ, and the purpose for our lives, the the calling that God has placed on every single one of us. And I want us to do that looking at 1 Peter 2. If you have a Bible, you can start opening it to 1 Peter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. If you have a smartphone, you can start scrolling to those verses. It's in your bulletin. It might be on the screen behind me. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But let me, let me just place us in the book of 1 Peter. We, we've been seeing, as we get through 1 Peter, we haven't been seeing, but it's here if you want to go see it. Um, that, that What Peter's doing is that he's, he's contrasting believers with non-believers. Those who are in Christ to those who are out of Christ those who have been brought into the church, those who are out of the church. And and he does so by using the idea of of Christ as the ultimate living cornerstone. And so what we see first in verses 4 on is that that for Christians, for those who are believing in Christ, that, that Christ is the cornerstone in which we are all being joined to and built up on top of. That we're being united to this cornerstone made into this perfect temple for God place of honor. And then it, it turns and it looks at non-believers. And, and that same stone that becomes a, a cornerstone and a building stone for us who are believers, for those who are not believing in Jesus, that same stone becomes the stumbling block that people are falling over as they disobey the word. So he's, he's comparing and contrasting believers and non-believers based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, he turns away from non-believers, turns back to believers, and gives us our identity. And that's what we see here. Look at with me. Verse 9. But you, you, who's the you here? It's believers, those who are Christians, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. In these two short verses, we see our identity, who we are in Christ, and we see our purpose, what we're called to as the people 
of Christ. And I want us to look at that. We're going to actually add a, a third thing I want us to see from these, these, this passage is, is how we became that. And so we're going to look at three things as we kind of go through these short verses. One is we're going to look at who we are. Christian, who are you? Who we are. What's our identity? Two, how we are who we are. That is, how did we become Christians? How do we become this people of God? And, and the third, I want to look at is why we are who we are. Why did God create this, this people called the church? What was the purpose behind that? Who we are, how we are who we are, why we are who we are. And ultimately, I want us to walk away seeing that God's priestly people are gospel proclaimers. Each and every one of us. God's priestly people are gospel proclaimers. Let's Let's jump in. Who we are. Christian, what is your identity? But you are. You are. That, that's identity language. This is telling you something about your own identity in Christ. Those who've been joined with Christ, being built up into the Holy Temple upon Christ, this is who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We see four describing phrases of, of who we are in our identity in Christ. Now, one thing we could do is, is try to go through each of those four phrases and, and dig into it and, and see what each of them is telling us. But for the sake of time, I don't want us to do that. I want us to look at it in kind of a big picture. How would the church in the first century have heard those four phrases as this letter of Peter arrives to them and is read to them? What would they think when they hear a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession? You know what they would have heard? They would have heard, you are like Israel. What, what scriptures did the, the church in the first century have? As, as the New Testament letters were being put together into the canon, into the, the New Testament, the scriptures they already had were the Old Testament. They were, they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And when they would hear these four phrases, all four phrases would, would pop out to them as something that has been borrowed from the Old Testament. Because you see, all four of these phrases was used by God in the Old Testament to refer to the people of Israel. The place this is probably most clearly seen is in the the book of Exodus, chapter 19. If you want to follow me there in your Bible, you can. I want to read a, a passage here. Exodus 19. Now let me place this in Exodus 19. So Exodus 19, we have God who has come and he's, he's delivered his people from Egypt and brought them out of the bondage of slavery. They've, they've wandered through the wilderness and now they're before Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, God's about to, to give his people his covenant He's united himself to these people. And before he does, he's, he's talking to Moses on the mountain. He says, hey, this, go tell this to the people of Israel. And this is what Moses is to tell them. Chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Did did you hear the similarity in that? Treasured possession, a possession of his own. A kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a holy nation. Peter is borrowing from Exodus 19 to describe to us as Christians, as the church, who we are and our identity in Christ. He's using the same language that God used of Israel. Now, without digging in deeper in what is the relationship right now between the church and Israel, at a minimum, what we can say is that God wants us to understand our identity in comparison to the identity of Israel. That in some way, The church itself is like, is similar to Israel. In what ways is that? What is it that we learn? What what was it about Israel there at the, the base of Mount Sinai that was true of them that we should know is true of ourselves? Well, there's a few things, and we're going to dig into one specific one that's important for us tonight, but but let me just note a couple. One is that we're a people. We're a distinct people. So just as Israel was a distinct people by by ancestry, a a people that was distinguished from the rest of the nations around them, common to one another, so too is the church a distinct people from all else. Our commonality is not our ancestry. Our commonality is Christ and our faith in Him and our unity to Him. And, And that commonality distinguishes us from all others. From, from all other nations, from, from all other peoples, all over the earth. Those who are believing in Christ are distinct and different from all others. This distinct people is, is not just a people, it's a, it's a privileged people. That, think about this, that we are the people, God's people, the church. We are the only people that have the ability to say we are God's people. That we are God's distinct chosen race. That he has bestowed his honor upon us. That in being his people, we have ability and access that no one else has, namely to God himself. That no one else has the ability to access God through Christ except those who are actually in Christ. That that this is a privilege. He calls his people a treasured possession. that, That God delights in his people. Who who else has the privilege and honor of knowing that God delights in them as his children and as his people? It's not just a people, but it's a privilege. We're we're, we're given, we're bestowed in honor in Christ. But it's just not that we're, we're a people that are privileged. Most importantly for tonight and for what we're looking at here, this people is priestly. You see, this is really important. We are a priestly people. We are a royal priesthood, as the the text says. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a a priestly person of God? What does it mean to be a part of a royal priesthood? Now, many of you, if you've been around the evangelical church or the Protestant church a long time, you may have heard 1 Peter 2.9 taught that the royal priesthood is that idea of the priesthood of all believers. Well, what does that mean? It means that all believers have access to God through Jesus Christ. 
that we're all priests, so we no longer need a special priest or, or a special spiritual person who can mediate my access to God. Because myself, I'm a priest, and so, so we all have access to God. Well, well, let me say, one, that's great theology. That is so true, that those of us who are in Christ, by the blood of Christ, can draw near to the throne of grace in confidence. We don't need anybody else to bring us there. Christ has done so at the cross. That is good theology. It's not primarily what 1 Peter 2.9 is teaching 1 Peter 2.9 is not primarily teaching us about access to God. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of Exodus 19. Right? In Exodus 19, the very same phrase, kingdom of priests, is used of the entirety of the nation of Israel. But we also know that the entirety of the nation of Israel, later in the book of Exodus, is given the priest that Aaron and his family are set apart to serve God, to be mediators between the nation of priests and God. So if nation of priests in, in, or a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19 doesn't mean access, then in 1 Peter 2.9, a royal priesthood doesn't mean access. Again, good theology. We do all have access to God through Christ. It's not what 1 Peter 2.9 is teaching. So what is 1 Peter 2.9 teaching? If, if it's not primarily about access. Well, what was true of Israel at Mount Sinai? Well, what else could God have been saying, hey, this is why you're a priest? Well, think about what else priests do. What are some other things that that we think about when we think about who the priests were. Well, the priest, if you think about it, priests are those people who are set apart. You know, the idea of holy, that actually means to set apart. So the priests were a people that were set apart to devote their lives to the service of God. You see, 1 Peter 2.9 is not primarily about access. It's about service. Israel, before Mount Sinai, was being set apart as a special people to devote themselves as a nation, each and every member of that nation, to serve God. And so, too, in Christ is the church and each individual member of it being set apart and devoted to a life of service of God. You see, to be, to be part of a royal priesthood is to be part of God's devoted servants. So, so if, you've, if you've been a part of the church thinking that those who are servants of the church or those who, who serve God in, in the Christian life are pastors or elders or missionaries or other, some, some kind of ministry leader, you're missing that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you are one of God's priests. You are one of God's servants. Every single one of us who has been united with Christ by our faith, our number one priority now is service to God. Our vocation, our primary vocation is serving God. So whether you're a teacher or whether you're a doctor or whether you're a sales associate or a pilot or a cabin crew, or a stay-at-home parent, whatever your earthly vocation is, your first and primary vocation is to serve God. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not telling you all to go quit your jobs and to go into full-time ministry. I'm not telling you to go quit your jobs and, and try to go into vocational ministry. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that, that your vocation, that, that school or that hospital or that store or that home or, or wherever it is that you're, you're committed to your vocation, that, that is the place and the people that God has placed you to serve him. That you are in that place primarily not to make money, primarily not to serve the people there, but primarily you're there to serve God. God's people are a priestly people. Each, don't miss that Christian, each of God's people is a priestly people. That's, that's who we are. We're a priestly people that have received an incredible privilege of being part of this. And, and so one of the things we ask is, okay, well, well, how are we? How do we become part of this, this royal priesthood? How do we become this priestly people? How are we who we are? That's a really important question to ask. And, and one of the reasons it's a really important question to ask is, is, I don't know about you, but when someone starts talking about me or I start reading that I'm this really privileged priestly person, like, like my temptation is, is to all of a sudden get boastful and get proud and, and to start thinking that I'm something pretty special. Because, you know, these, these kind of select groups, in the world we live, these, these kind of select privileged groups, there's usually something you have to do to earn your way into them. And think about, think about some of these groups. Think of Mensa. You guys familiar with Mensa? So, so Mensa, if you are in the top 2% of all the world IQs, then you can be admitted into Mensa. How do you get into Mensa? You're smart. I'm not in Mensa. But maybe you are. Right? And the way you got into it was because you proved your intelligence. And maybe if you did a, a really good work, then you received the Nobel Prize and that you were invited into the community of, of Nobel laureates. You proved an incredible work in science or in literature or, or in, in world peace that, that others looked and said, that's so good. We're going to invite him. And how did you get a Nobel laureate? You, you did something the world thought was really good. You earned your way in. Or maybe it's just you're wealthy. There's, there's communities. If, if you have enough money after service day, you could go down to DIFC. You could, you could go to the Capitol Club there. You could pay their membership fee and become part of their membership and their community. How did you get into that? Well, you had enough wealth and, and, and status to, to pay your way in. And, and so when I start thinking to myself in these, this privileged group of priestly people of God, I, I have the temptation to start going, wow, I'm something really special. Uh, God must be really lucky to have me. But, but it wasn't by our intelligence or, or by our good works or, or by our wealth and our power and status that we became part of the people of God. How did we qualify for the people of God? How are we admitted to the people of God? Well, it's in our text in verse 10. We're going to come up to the rest of, of verse 9 later, but, but I want to see first how we got to be part of this people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, the before and after, we, we weren't in the people of God. We weren't a priestly person. And, and now we are in the people of God. We are a priestly person. Well, what changed? Well, before, when we weren't a priestly person, we had, had not yet received mercy. 
And now that we are a priestly person, we receive mercy. What qualified you, Christian, to be a priestly person of God? What, in what way were you admitted? Simply by receiving mercy. Mercy. Mercy, that, that idea of, of not getting what you actually deserve. Not getting the, the wrath or not getting the punishment that you actually deserve. See, every single one of us in this room, every single person that's ever lived, all we deserve to get from God was wrath and punishment. The wickedness of our hearts. The number of sins and offenses that we have toward God. The only thing that we could hope for the only thing that justice could bring about in our lives would be to receive from God punishment. But in God's mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, the perfect one, fully God, fully man. The only one who lived that perfect life, that had the perfect spiritual resume that none of us have. And God sent him to the cross where he would take on the punishment and the death that we so rightly deserve, and he would give us his perfect righteousness, which he had earned. And the only reason that that happened was mercy. We weren't smart enough to get it. We didn't do enough good things to get it. We didn't receive the right status and wealth and power to get it. But God, in his lavish love, extended to us mercy. That's it. That's how we became Christian. That's how we became God's priestly people. Maybe you're here today going, I don't know, how, do, how do I know if I've received mercy? What does it look like in my life to receive mercy? How do I know if I'm one of these God's priestly people? That sounds pretty great. I want to be, I want to be part of that. You, you simply know because you believe. You believe. You believe that you're a sinner who, who so desperately needed that there's nothing you could do to earn your way to God. And you believe that God in his, his loving kindness sent Jesus, his son, God and man to earth to live the perfect life that you didn't live. You believe that Jesus went to the cross and he died a sacrificial death, taking upon himself your punishment and giving you his righteousness. You believe that he was raised from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death. And you believe that he will return again someday to, to consummate his eternal rule. And in believing all of this, you, you turn away from your old life of sin and you turn toward Jesus and begin to follow in him. You receive mercy and you know it because you believe. And, and if that's happening, if that's being stirred in your heart right now, first thing, rejoice. Rejoice is a sweet thing to receive mercy. Second thing is, is find someone to walk with. Find someone to share that with. Find an, an elder or a pastor here at Redeemer Dubai or, or another member of the church and share with them what's going on in your heart and, and walk with them. Friends, we became God's priestly people simply for no other reason than he delighted to extend to us his mercy. Who are we? We're God's priestly people. How are we who we are? God gave us mercy. Why? 
Why would God do this? Why, why would God look upon a person like me whose, whose life was just wrecked with sin and rebellion against him? And he would, in his loving kindness, extend to me and, and extend to you mercy. Why would he do that? Well, he had a purpose. He had a purpose. He had a reason why he made a priestly people. He has a why we are who we are. And that's what we see in the rest of, of verse 9. That. When you see that in Scripture, often think purpose. What is it? Reason. What, why did something just happen? Well, he, he made it his chosen race. Why? What's the purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into multitude in marvelous light. He did this that we may proclaim his glorious gospel. He saved us so that we would be those who would declare forth his glory and his excellencies, his gospel. What, is, what are we proclaiming? What, what are excellencies? I don't know about you. I don't use that word a whole lot in my day-to-day -day life. What is this talking about? Well, this actually, the Greek word behind this is not used anywhere else in, in the New Testament. It, it kind of has two different ideas behind it, uh, and people debate which one it is. And one, sometimes it was used in the ancient Greek world to mean virtue or character. So the virtue or character of God. And, and other times it was used to represent a, a divine showing or working of power. Well, the way I see it, either which one of those you choose that for this to mean, we're ultimately talking about the gospel and the cross. Because nowhere else but the cross do we see the fullness of God's character on display. His holiness, yet his love. His wrath, yet his mercy. It all comes together at the cross. There's, not, there's nowhere else in Scripture that we see a more complete understanding of God's character and virtue than when we look upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Or you think it's about his divine working of power, which, which is also the gospel, that, that after Christ has died, he, he lays in a tomb, and three days later, by the power and the divine working of that power, Christ raises from the dead, and in that, defeating that death, countless millions then would be raised ourselves from spiritual death. That that, that was, the cross was, the greatest display of divine power that we've ever seen in history. So when I say to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, I say to proclaim the gospel. You see, what God is doing is he's going, he's extending mercy. He, he's lavishing his love on people like you and me that we'd be so awestruck, so amazed, so in wonder at what he did and what we've experienced and what we've tasted in Christ, that then we would turn around and become his mouthpiece by which we proclaim those same excellencies and that same gospel to others. Friend, if you don't even have the desire to share the gospel with others, if you don't even have the desire to share of who Jesus is to others, I worry that you haven't actually experienced Jesus. I worry that you actually haven't tasted of this beautiful thing that he offers us in his grace. 
Because when we have experienced and we've truly tasted of Jesus, the gospel is just setting on the tip of our tongues, ready to leap forth at every given opportunity. I remember after my daughter was born, she's two years old now, Natalie, and I remember that I was so amazed by this miracle. I was, I was in wonder at becoming a father, and that, that no matter where I went, I was, just, I was telling everybody. People who didn't want to know were hearing about Natalie. I was ordering coffee, and I ended up telling the barista about how wonderful this thing called Natalie is. Oh, she's perfect, and she's beautiful. I haven't slept in weeks, but that doesn't matter, you know? I would go to people, you know, the, the how are you question where they really don't want to know how you are. Oh, I would tell them how I was. I was, it was amazing. I was awestruck at this miracle called birth, and I had this daughter, and she's alive, and I didn't know how it happened. She grew her mom and all this weird stuff, and how much more, how much more should we be amazed at the gospel? How much more awestruck from something like childbirth, which is, which is amazing and stuff, how much more awestruck should we be that the, the king of the universe has chosen people like us to become his priestly proclaimers of his excellencies. How amazing that he would send his only son to a cross to die for a sinner like me. And if I fully grasped that, if I fully understood the, the wonder and the awe of that, would I ever stop talking about it? Or would it be sitting here right at the tip of my tongue, ready to leap forth at every opportunity? I was in our line when I was pastoring there, and I, my car providentially broke down. And so I called a friend of mine named Brandon. I said, come pick me up. He picked me up. We went to the, the car store where you buy things for cars. I don't know much about cars. You'll learn quickly. Uh, and because we didn't know much about cars, we got the parts we thought we needed, but we had no idea what to do with the parts that we thought we needed. And so we asked the man there who sold us the parts. His name was Abdullah. He is from Afghanistan. We, we told him, hey, would you come help us put these parts in the car? And he said, sure. And we offered to pay him something. And so, so he jumps in the car with us. We're driving back to my car. It's about a 10-minute ride. That's it, about a 10-minute ride. And he makes the comment that the Eid weekend is coming up. And Brandon, my friend, he immediately sees the opportunity. And so before even thinking about it, the gospel is just leaping off of his tongues. And he starts to describe how, how we don't need an Eid sacrifice anymore because we have the, the perfect and final sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And, and that sacrifice rose from the dead. Now we get to live in him. And, and the whole thing beautifully spilled forth from his mouth. And, and it was absolutely beautiful. And it was awkward. And, and guess what, Abdullah? He rejected it. He rejected the opportunity to, to repent and confess and the rest of the ride to the car was rather quite silent. And, and here's the thing. That's okay. That's okay because what God has called us to do as his priestly people is to proclaim. We've never been called to save anyone. We can't save anyone. Saving is God's job. The job he's given to each and every single one of us. Every one of us that are, is a believer. Every one of us that calls himself a Christian. The job he's given to us is to simply proclaim. And that day, Brandon, who had tasted so beautifully of the gospel, beautifully shared the beautiful truths that we hold so dear. Now, that, there is a reality there that, that just because we, we accept our identity as, as this priestly people, it doesn't mean that proclaiming the gospel is going to be all of a sudden come easy. 
Right? That's just not the reality. That, that it's still hard. It's still awkward. There's, there's still times that the gospel is going to offend people. There's still times that we'll want to talk and the words just won't quite come out of our mouth. If you had that experience and you start stuttering around or and so how can we as a people, if, if we're really, if the, the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart that says, hey, I want to, I want to live out my identity as, as God's priestly people. I want to, I, I want to, that he's called me to be a proclaimer. I want to do that. How, how can you grow in that? Let me give you two ways that you can become better at proclaiming the gospel. One is dive deeply into his excellencies. The more we taste, the deeper we go into the truth about who he is and what he's done for you, the more we should be amazed and the more awestruck we should be and the more wonder that should fill us. And as we're filled with more wonder, the easier and more naturally we're going to proclaim those things. Dive into his word. Study him. Know him. Know his word. Know what he's done for you. That's the first thing. The second thing is to, to proclaim here amongst yourself. In some ways, that's called discipleship, right? So when we're telling the gospel to out people outside the church, it's evangelism. We call, when we share the gospel with people in the church, it's called discipleship. Like, but here's the thing. If you feel uncomfortable talking about the gospel with your Christian brother or sister, you're going to feel really uncomfortable talking about the gospel to someone who doesn't know it. So, so this is a place where you can get used to speaking forth the gospel truths. That, that as a church, we should be. We should be speaking forth gospel truths. We should be educating and, and teaching and exhorting and encouraging and rebuking by the gospel. And the more we speak it, the more naturally it comes out. And the more naturally it comes out here, the more naturally it's going to come out out there. I want us to remember something. Everyone in this room who who calls himself a Christian. Everyone in this room who, who says, I believe in Jesus, I've placed my faith in him, I've, I've confessed. A every single person, you receive mercy because someone was obedient to proclaim the gospel to you. The way that you became a Christian is someone was obedient to their priestly role for God to proclaim forth the gospel to you and you believed. And in my own life, there are, there are many people throughout my life I heard the gospel from. I rejected almost all of them. But there was a time in my life that there was a man named Ron. Ron came to me. I was a, I was a practicing lawyer at the time. I, I thought myself very self-sufficient. I thought myself self-reliant. I didn't need anything else. I was, I was good. I was all set. And Ron saw through that. He saw through that facade of self-reliance. And he saw through that facade that I had things all figured out. And, and you know what Ron did? He, he didn't get nervous and worry about offending me. He, he didn't get worried that, that somehow I would reject him. Week in, week out, what Ron did was he proclaimed the truth of Jesus to me. And he shared with me my desperate need and, and the hope that lie in Christ for me if I would believe. Wouldn't it be a privilege to see some of those people come to confess him? Friend, you're God's priestly people as a gospel proclaimer. Let's pray. Father, help us see ourselves as you see us. Father, help us know our identity in Christ. Lord, may we not be content just being saved ones. 
But Lord, would you stir our hearts to desire to be proclaiming ones, to be priestly ones in your service? Lord, even as you stir about this desire, would your Holy Spirit propel us forward? Lord, when when things like fear and discouragement tempt to silence us, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your own excellencies, the, the wonder of the gospel that we ourselves have tasted, that we may continue to go out and be your good gospel priestly proclaimers in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may continue to go out and be your good gospel priestly proclaimers in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.